Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. Joe, we finished our bowl spectacular. Um, you know, we were talking about uh, the games that really matter, the college football playoff games. I think you had mentioned you like Michigan going away against TCU, and I wanted you to elaborate on that a little bit more for our listeners. So I think that TCU's been a great story all year. You know, they played just uh, – a heart, you know, breaking loss, you know, just a great game against um, Kansas State in the finals. But I just look at how Michigan has been dominant at times this season, and I just think that they're just um, more battle-tested than TCU. Um, yeah, I think I could see TCU maybe like in the first quarter, first half, keeping it close. But I just I just feel like we're just set up for um, Georgia in, uh, in Michigan. And I think that of the two games, if – um, anybody has an issue, it's going to be more so Georgia against C.J. Stroud in Ohio State. Okay. Well, Joe, one thing I will say is that you look at the way that Kansas State is built, they're like a smaller, less talented version of what Michigan is. They like to braise you running the ball. They play good defense. There's good tackling. Very uh, well coached in terms of what they do. They don't commit a lot of penalties. And Michigan, I mean, they've really just kind of boat raced everybody this entire season. There hasn't been – I think they, they had to beat Illinois in the cold on a last-second field goal, and Maryland kind of hung with them for a lot of the game. But outside that, including against Ohio State, Michigan beat them pretty handily. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I mean, Michigan just – I feel like they're just riding a, a wave of momentum right now. That's right, Joe. And I think I look at the kind of game that Deuce Vaughn had against TCU – uh, that's that's a suggestion that maybe um, Donovan Mitchell will be able to have a good game. But I would say from the TCU standpoint, you can point to the fact they really did shut down B. John Robinson. So there have been times when they really did show some defense and they won based on their ability to stop the run. I think Michigan does win this game, but I think TCU is going to hang there. I think that maybe uh, Michigan wins this game somewhere in the lines of like 35 to 20, 24, something like that. And don't get me wrong, I'd love to see TCU win. Um, I, I just, you know, kind of have to – I feel like uh, Michigan's going to to have their way and then we'll, we'll be set up, you know, for them to make it to the finals. Okay, Joe, and you said you felt like Georgia might have more trouble. What do you see Ohio State doing? How close do you see them to knocking off the Bulldogs? I think it's within 10 points. Um, I think that there's something about Stroud and the motivation he's going to be playing with because you brought up a good point last week or the week before with the fact that Stroud's never beaten Michigan. And I got to think he's thinking, you know, I've never beaten him in the regular season, but I could end my career by beating them in the national championship game in a storybook ending. And so I think that Ohio state has talent too. And I don't know, you know, if we really haven't seen Georgia play an offense like this because Georgia didn't have to play Bryce Young in the regular season. That's true, Joe. They didn't have to play anyone that had a compelling offense, with the exception of Tennessee and Hendon Hooker. They did shut down Tennessee, but that's really kind of the only one they played. Of course, they beat up on Oregon before Oregon really kind of hit their stride, too. Um, You know, something that kind of sticks in my mind, Joe, is Ohio State's a little bit like Georgia last year, right? Georgia was so good for the entire season – they have their pivotal game against Alabama, and they play their worst game of the season, and Alabama kills them. This is what Ohio State did, and they didn't play Michigan in the Big Ten championship game, but they played them at the end of the season, 
And Ohio State, which a lot of people said going into the year, was the most talented team in college football, uh, you know, did everything they needed to do throughout the entire season until that one, then lost playing their their worst game and got beat pretty badly, but got to be in the college football playoffs that four seed, just like Georgia kind of did last season. Maybe there's a chance that Ohio State is going to have kind of a similar kind of result. I still like Georgia in this because, you know, unlike uh, last year where Georgia got to take on a Michigan team that it's not quite as good as this year's Michigan team and really got to play with that motivation, this Georgia team is so good. But I'm kind of with you that I think Ohio State's going to put up a really good effort and fight. Mm-hmm. I-, I think it could be really interesting. Okay. Uh, Joe, another one that I wanted to talk about that's a SEC Big Ten matchup. Uh, you know, we briefly mentioned how we both like Mississippi State against Illinois, but I wanted to talk about why I like Mississippi State in this game. Because one thing that impressed me so much in that Egg Bowl, and I think maybe more so than any team that Ole Miss played the entire season, Zach Arnett's Bulldogs defense really shut down the Ole Miss running attack. And I thought Judkins and Evans had their worst games of the season. Yeah, and that kind of, you know, cancels out what against most teams would be an advantage, you know, with the Illinois running attack with Chase Brown. And I think that, you know, Arnett, um, he'll have this defense ready to, and Will Rogers is going to be motivated. And I think, you know, at times, obviously, um, against Ole Miss, maybe their offense wasn't quite as steady as far as the rhythm. But, you know, Will Rogers at times this year, I mean, he really had his offense completely in sync, and they were just on a very high level. Yeah, you look at the way the Mississippi State ended the season, too. I mean, not just the the win against Ole Miss. I think they won, like, their last three games of the year. And they beat an Auburn team that was inspired playing with Cornell Williams, which in retrospect is a much better win than it appeared at the time. They got their win over uh, Ole Miss, and they beat, you know, a nobody team like 70-7. to But the offense has been playing really spot on. And I just think that Illinois is not going to be able to run with Chase Brown the way they want to. And I look for Mississippi State to win this game in an inspired fashion pretty comfortably. And, Joe, I wanted to ask you, do you think they're going to name Zach Arnett as the permanent head coach in Mississippi State? It was announced, uh, I think it was this afternoon, that, that they have. He's okay, going good. to be the, the head coach. Yep. Well, I think that's the right decision because I think he's a great up-and-coming head coach. He's someone that deserves at least a year to see what he can do at Mississippi State. And that's a great way to hold on to him, too. It's a little bit of a Marcus Freeman move like what Notre Dame did last year. And I think that is the best possible thing you could do. They don't need to do a coaching search. They got somebody that's worthy of a chance right now. Yes, yes, for all those reasons. And I would also add, too, you know, that I think it's good with recruiting to keep him in place to stabilize and then also, I think, you know, he's shown loyalty to State. He turned down um, offers to go to other places, like in the last offseason or two. Yeah, I mean, I know that he was someone that was high on many places' uh, radar as to getting big D.C. jobs, and he stuck with Mike Leach in Mississippi State. Exactly. All right, Joe, uh, moving on to another big uh, LS, another big uh, SEC Big Ten matchup. There's some good bowl games here. LSU and Purdue. And, Joe, this is a game that I think my opinion changed on it literally this week when Jeff Brom left to go to Louisville. I think I might probably would have picked the spoiler makers in this one based on the precipitous fall that LSU football has had, you know, in recent weeks from 
being a team that was going to make the college football playoff to one who just got destroyed by Texas A&M, a team that didn't make the bowl, uh, bowl game, and then one who gave up 50 points to Georgia. And, you know, but meanwhile, Purdue just lost Jeff Brom and got beat pretty badly in their one chance to make a – to win the Big Ten championship. And I think I would have – I would have gone spoiler makers. They still had Jeff Brom, but I got to lean uh, Brian Kelly and, and LSU now. Yeah, I think LSU wins too. And, you know, to your point, as a, an Ole Miss fan, I was kind of hoping that LSU, you know, lose their bowl game. And then suddenly they end the season on like a three game losing streak in what was, you know, a big season suddenly doesn't look so big. <laughs> but I think, I think, though, that they're going to win um, for all the reasons that you articulated. That's right. And, Joe, I, you know, one thing that I think we'll really see as a test of Brian Kelly's coaching medal is if there's not that many opt-outs for LSU in this game. If you see Kayshawn Butte play in this game, if you see, like, Perkins and some of these other players that they have that are really good superstars, if they come out and play in this game, then that shows you that Brian Kelly really is enforcing his uh, mold and mindset on this team. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right, Joe, maybe the most fascinating bowl game in the entire slate and one that I'm so excited to talk about, USC and Tulane in the Cotton Bowl. Um, I mean, you know, we've talked about these motivations things, but this is the biggest game in Tulane football since the 1960s. I mean, this is huge. They get to take on Heisman Trophy winner Caleb Williams, who had his team just one Utah beatdown away from making the college football playoff. And Tulane, of course, coming off their huge win over UCF, where you just saw such raw happiness in getting this opportunity to play in this game that I, I haven't really seen from an AAC kind of program. And it made me happy as like being someone from Mobile who goes to New Orleans fairly, you know, a lot and having a lot of high school friends who went to Tulane. I love seeing that forum. And I just think this is going to be such a cool opportunity. And of course, with the Cotton Bowl being. In uh, in Dallas, I expect there to be a huge contingent of Tulane fans here. I think this is going to be a really exciting game. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, one of those years where, you know, obviously I don't think the game's going to go like this, but I think about, like, when Hawaii went to the Sugar Bowl, you know, how excited their fan base traveled. You know, it's just great when you see kind of that old-fashioned BCS buster. And this year we see Tulane getting that prime opportunity. And, yeah, I think it's going to be a great atmosphere. I think, you know, of all the games, probably including the playoffs, it's maybe the game I'm most interested really to see from just a watchability standpoint. And then on the flip side, being able to see uh, the offense um, potentially lighted up for uh, USC and Caleb Williams and Lincoln Riley. But at the end of the day, I'm going upset here. I'm going to lane to win this game. I just think that they're going to treat this, you know, with the excitement of like their national championship. And I know that somebody could argue there's pressure but I call it motivation and inspiration, and I think they win this game. Yeah, Jeremy, I look at this as very similar to the UCF-Auburn game back in 2017. Auburn lost their chance against Georgia to make the college football playoff. UCF was looking at this as a chance to have an undefeated season and claim a national championship. Well, Tulane's not going to have any, any chance to claim a national championship, but they can win this game and get, you know – and get all the attention, get all of the, the movement going into the next season, I think place themselves in a position where maybe the next time expansion talks get brought up, maybe Tulane's a team that gets into one of these big-time conferences. All these things are on the table. 
And the main reason that I like Tulane to beat USC, Joe, is what did we see when USC played Utah? We saw a weak offensive line and a weak defensive line that got punished by superior athletes at Utah. Yes, Tulane is not LSU, but they get some of the same kind of players from the same area that that LSU does, where they always have a great offensive line and defensive line. And I think that Tulane is actually a better team in the trenches than USC. I mean, you talked about it the last show that USC may be the best seven-on-seven team in America, and that may be true, but they don't have an offensive line or a defensive line. And this Tulane team has a pretty solid one, and I look for Tulane to win this game in the trenches. Yeah, I, I can see that, you know, and I think that they'll be able to celebrate, you know, just an unbelievable historic season for their fan base. Absolutely. I think it's going to be a crowning achievement for a great season for Willie Fretz and a really great, uh, you know, great time for the city of New Orleans to have their school do this. Exactly. All right, Joe, the last game and also just another great matchup, Utah and Penn State in the Rose Bowl. This will be back-to-back appearances for Utah in the Rose Bowl. We remember their incredible game they had against Ohio State last year where it took uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba's, what, 280 yards receiving and five touchdowns to beat them and really kind of what jump-started C.J. Stroud's Heisman Trophy campaign this season. Uh, Utah coming off just such an impressive performance over USC where they really they just kind of beat him on both sides of the ball and uh, made Caleb Williams eat those nails that he painted. And now they're taking on Penn State, who I saw in person again this year, really impressive football team, who, like I said, I think is a top seven-level talented team. Probably the last game that we'll get to see for uh, their embattled quarterback, Sean Clifford, who I think is someone that gets a lot of hatred for being a very good player who just hasn't quite got him to the promised land, you know? And so this is going to be a fascinating game because James Franklin has not won these games in the past. He's got a huge contract, a lot of pressure. Meanwhile, Utah really wants to avenge that loss they had last year. And I kind of think that, uh, you know, Utah is going to the team that's playing a little looser in this one. I think Penn State's got a lot of pressure to win this game to show that, yes, we lost to Ohio State and we lost to Michigan, but look at what we did. We killed Auburn, and now we're going to show out and we're going to beat this Pac-12 team, and we're going to show that maybe next season we will be able to reach the Ohio States and Michigans. And meanwhile, I think Utah is just playing loose. Like, they want to win this game. They got a lot of motivation but I don't think that heavy uh, fan pressure is on them. And I think I like Utah in this game. I think so, too. I think about Cameron Rising, you know, maybe his last game as the quarterback for Utah. He's played really well, had a good career. And I think, you know, the running attack for Utah, very underrated. We saw how effective they were against uh, USC in the championship game of the Pac-12. You know, Penn State's got a long flight ahead of them to get over there, cross country. Uh, Utah, you know, significantly closer. Um, but I just think that this is the type of game that because Utah's not won the Rose Bowl, I think it's going to mean a lot to their fans. And I know they had disappointment with the college football playoff hype, but I feel like that ended for them soon enough where they were able to have kind of a different perspective on the season. And I think that they're definitely up to salvage the season. I think so too, Joe. I think this is a game that's really important to them. They want to win it. They want to win that first Rose Bowl. And I think that they're playing with such fire where, yes, their dreams got crushed at Florida and it got ended later, I think, against Washington. 
But then, you know, they started playing their best football after that, and they made this their goal to win this game. And you saw the way they beat uh, USC, and they're playing their best football right now. And Penn State's played really good since they lost to Ohio State. They have. But I just don't see the same fire in them. And I also think that Penn State's going to have trouble beating a team as disciplined as USC is. You know, probably the only other team that uh, that they played that's like Utah in terms of how well they tackle and how well they run the football was Michigan. And Michigan destroyed Penn State. So I think that Utah is a very similar kind of team to Michigan, and I like Utah in this game. Absolutely. All right, Joe. Uh, the last one that I have is a tiebreaker. And what I'm going to make for the tiebreaker in case you and I uh, reach a tie, which is totally possible because I think we only have – well, from what I count, three games where you and I went on different sides of it is uh, the total amount of points scored in the Ohio State-Georgia game. So I would put it at um, – I'll put it at 55. 55, okay. All right. All right, Joe, I'm going to actually say that this game ends up being much more high scoring than people think. And I like this one to be 63. Okay. Yeah, so that'll be a 35 28 type score. All right. And now switching gears, Joe, we got the World Cup going to the very final game. It's going to be, I think, the matchup that most people wanted to see. I think probably if you wanted to ask a Fox executive what his dream matchup would be, it would be a Portugal and Argentina matchup. So you could see Ronaldo and Messi face off for the World Cup final and kind of put that one cap on each of their legacies as being the greatest soccer player of all time, or at least putting them on the Mount Rushmore where it's their faces there with Messi, right, or with with Pele, right, kind of put them up there. Well, Ronaldo got knocked out by this, this uh, feisty Moroccan team. But meanwhile, Messi keeps on advancing. Yet again, they won 3 to nothing over Croatia. But I think you got your second best one, which is Mbappe, which I think right now, Kylian Mbappe, there's an argument. He's the best player right now in soccer. You look at how fast he is, the ability he has to quick, score the quick goals. And Messi is playing out of his mind in this World Cup. He's the leader in goals scored. And he gets to take on the young gun and Mbappe, who's going to be the guy for the next 10 years that's going to be Messi once Messi hangs it up. So I think that you didn't get Ronaldo and Messi, but you got probably the next best thing and not that far away from it. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely has a lot of intrigue to it. I think about France winning the World Cup four years ago and how tough it is, it seems like, historically for a team to repeat because your team's usually so different four years later. I can think about, I think it was when Italy won it, maybe in 06. I don't even think they made it to the knockout stage in 2010. And so a lot of credit to them. And then Argentina, you know, just, uh, you know, really cool to see Messi with this opportunity. So I think we're really set up for a very uh, interesting uh, final. Well, Joe, what makes me really excited about this final is if you remember four years ago when France won the World Cup, they beat Argentina in the quarterfinals in a really exciting game. They beat Argentina four to three. And I think it was a game that Argentina got out to a two to nothing lead. France got out and scored four goals in a row and Argentina scored another one and had another chance at the end to tie it up. And Mbappe, I think, scored three goals in that game. 
And so this is one of the more like exciting high scoring games we saw. And if you look at both these teams, they're both teams that have given up a lot of goals and scored a lot of goals. So I don't think this is going to be a game that you see go 0-0 and then go to penalty kicks. I see this being a game that's more like a, you know, 3-3 three to three and it goes to penalty kicks or a 3-2. to two. There's going to be a lot of goals scored in this, and I think both Mbappe and Messi are going to, Messi are going to score goals in this game. I could certainly see that. You know, they've both been hot. You know, Messi's been getting a lot of goals lately. So, yeah, I think that it, it does not seem like a game, you know, that significantly favor, favors either team to be a blowout. So, yeah, I think that I could easily see this going to uh, penalty kicks. Yeah. And, Joe, you know, speaking of the teams that made the semifinals now, which being uh, Croatia and Morocco who are going to play for the third-place game, uh, Croatia made another deep run. Of course, they lost in penalty kicks um, to the eventual champion France last time. Uh you know, they got beat really handily by Argentina in a game where Messi kicked one of the most perfect penalty kicks I've ever seen, and Alvarez scored two really good goals as a young star for Argentina. But I, I'm just really impressed at Croatia to be able to make the final and then come back and make the semis this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that does say, say a lot about their resiliency. And, Joe, on the other side of it, uh, even more impressed with Morocco – I mean, I watched their match today against France, and the final score says two to nothing, but that's not indicative of the way that match went. Morocco had a lot of opportunities to score goals and just barely missed one. There was one where they had a player do a bicycle kick where at first it like it went off the post, but when they showed the replay, the French goalie actually touched it away or else it would have been a goal. And Morocco had all kinds of opportunities they didn't capitalize on and you think of the road that they did to get to where they did. They beat some of the greatest powers in Europe back to back to back and almost made it to the finals against Argentina, winning four games in a row against really good European teams. They beat uh, Belgium, Spain, and Portugal all coming up to France. And even though the final score was two to nothing, they had a great chance to knock off uh, Le Bleu today. Yeah, they really did. And I think, you know, they're de- definitely proud, you know, of how far they, they came and just uh, came up just a little bit short. Yeah, Joan, I thought that was a great uh, moment for, you know, the continent of Africa and the Arab world to have a World Cup taking place in Qatar and to have Morocco make the semifinals. And you got to see the atmosphere for the games day. There were more Moroccan fans than there were French fans there. They had an easier trip. They made it and they showed the support. And I thought that really added a whole lot to the first World Cup to take place in the Middle East to have this great run by this Moroccan team. Definitely. Definitely. But yeah, moving forward, Joe, we're going to have an amazing World Cup final on Sunday. Uh, I'm hoping that I get to see Lionel Messi just uh, finish his legacy as possibly the greatest soccer player of all time, winning that one World Cup. I actually saw when I was driving around Mobile today a couple Argentina flags, and it was making me happy. So I'm hoping that he that he gets it done. And uh, you know, I, I this is probably a pick that's based out of emotion and love, but I'm going to pick Messi and Argentina to win this one. I think it's going to be close, and I could even see it go to penalty kicks. And I'd be surprised, honestly, at this point, if they didn't win. I really think that uh, it seems like everything's set up for them, uh, in my opinion, to to win this match. Absolutely. I think, Joe, the match that made me decide they were going to win is when they gave up that huge lead to the Netherlands, where they gave up the two goals in a row in the last 10 minutes and were still able to recover 
and their goalie especially, who only had two got shots on goal, let both of them in. But he played amazing in that penalty kicks and made some great stops, and they beat that really feisty Dutch team that was so talented. Yeah, that, that was a very impressive uh, match for sure. I get to watch. I remember the last few minutes and the penalty kicks of that. Yeah, so that I think that was the one that really got this Argentine team going. And, you know, kind of like what we've seen in a lot of sports, sometimes those teams that are uber-talented, when they take that early loss against a team they're not supposed to, it heightens their focus. And so I think the two games that may define this Argentina team, if they're the one holding up the World Cup, is that embarrassing loss to Saudi Arabia 2-1 to one, and then weathering, you know, this this huge comeback by the Netherlands to win in penalty kicks. Yeah, no, I, I could definitely see that adding to the the story as far as, you know, the, what they endured in overcame. That's right, Joe. And speaking of great stories, how about the fact that we're going to see a Joe, um, a Joe Burrow and a Tom Brady matchup this weekend in the NFL? Why don't you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, Dan, uh, for the first time, we're going to see these two quarterbacks square off. And unfortunately, it's probably going to be the only time um, at this point. But, you know, really cool to see it because, you know, you have Tom Brady and his legacy. And Joe Burrow has been likened to him to a large degree is kind of like that next, um, you know, number one um, all-world quarterback in the NFL, kind of like the next face of the league. And so coming off the Super Bowl loss, you know, they narrowly lost to the Rams last year for Joe Burrow. You know, you're still kind of on the rise. You've been playing better football down the stretch, and now you're taking on a Bucks team that is really struggling offensively and uh, lost, uh, you know, last week handily to the 49ers. And so a Bucks team that really needs this game more than you do. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh, they're both having a little bit of disappointing seasons based on what we thought they would do to begin the year. But the Bucks, of course, more so on that. And, you know, right now they're in danger of losing the worst division in all of the NFL. That They are. And, you know, right now I think they still control their own destiny because I think the Panthers and them both control their own destiny. I, th- destiny. I think if either of them wins out, they win the division. And interestingly, they're going to play before the last week, the Panthers and the Buccaneers. So that will probably, you know, end up deciding the division. But let's say the Buccaneers could, you know, uh, sneak in the playoffs. Let's say they defeat and upset Cincinnati on Sunday and kind of move on that pathway. That could set up what I think would be just a fascinating wildcard matchup if the Dallas Cowboys had to travel to Tampa Bay. I mean, can you imagine the pressure that would be on Prescott in the Cowboys franchise to beat Tom Brady. Uh, I just think that'd be a lot of fun. That would be really fascinating to watch because the Cowboys have been so bad in the playoffs and Dak Prescott has, has continued that legacy that the Cowboys just can't get it done in the playoffs since the 1990s. And for, for them to go into Tampa against a reeling Tampa team that barely makes the playoffs, they lost that one. I think Jerry Jones' head would explode. Mm-hmm. And that would just be another uh, notch, you know, on Tom Brady's belt. But, Dan, you mentioned, you know, teams had not won since the 90s. And I think about our Atlanta Braves up until last year, they had not really won much since the 1990s. And they pulled off an interesting trade this week. Um, They acquired uh, Sean Murphy, uh, gold glove catcher from the Oakland Athletics. Um, So the Braves had to give up William Contreras, who was an all-star last year, a backup catcher. But I think this is a very underrated move, Uh, very interesting to see how uh, Murphy will um, be as an addition to that lineup. 
Um, I think he's a better defensive catcher than what they've had. But I am going to be fascinated to see what they do now that they'll have both Sean Murphy and also presumably Travis Darno still on the roster. That will be interesting. But the Braves general manager, I mean, just the last couple of years, I know we've lost some, you know, favored players like Freddie Freeman, but he's definitely acquired some very notable uh, free agents and trades. Uh, Joe, I think the the GM job done for the Braves in the last couple of years is just so much better than what we saw in the previous 20 before that. Because after those runs in the 90s, you felt like all the Braves would do is they'd get a great player, have him for three years, and they'd lose him to the Yankees, the Dodgers. You'd see the Mark Teixeiras, uh, those kind of players leaving the Braves really quickly, the, the Howards, them getting out when, right when we thought they were doing, you know, doing great things for the Braves. And, you know, now you see, I mean, yeah, they got rid of Freddie Freeman, but he had been there for 10 years, was calling for a lot of cat space, but they're holding on to the nucleus of this teams, the Acunias, and they're going out and they're getting these kind of really great players and free agency like Murphy and, you know, like what we saw like in, in a lot of the team, the, the really talented things that they have going on right now. And I really like the, the shape of this Braves program right now. And I know they didn't, you know, they didn't repeat as World Series champions, but yet again, they made the playoffs. They won their division. They had a furious run to get there at the very end. And I just think they're in a really great place right now. And they just, I think, ran into like a buzzsaw and one of the hottest teams in the Phillies, you know, who just, you know, snuck into the playoffs. And then, you know, they almost, uh, they made it to the World Series. And so I think that the Braves are in a good position. The next decision they've got to make is whether to uh, re-sign Dansby, Dansby Swanson He's one of the last remaining free agents on the market. But, Dan, just real quick, there have been a lot of free agent deals this offseason with the winter meetings. It's been a free agency frenzy, and it just amazes me the contracts that are going out there. I saw today that uh, the San Francisco Giants, for instance, signed um, Carlos Correa to like a 13-year contract. So it seems like now like the commonplace market value of a lot of these players is like a 10-year $300 million contract for players, you know, that you wouldn't have expected to get that much money. And that may end up being a reason the Braves don't keep uh, Dansby Swanson. Yeah. I mean, these like over 10 year contracts now are crazy and you're right. I mean, I feel like that has been the norm lately. Um, you know, I mean, I feel like that started a couple years ago with, uh, you know, I'm trying to think which player it was that kind of started that. Like Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper, yeah. And since then, you feel like pretty much all these big-time players, that's what they're commanding is $300 million plus and 10, 10-year contracts. And, yeah, that may hurt Dansby Swanson. And, and I hate it because he's a guy that's actually from Atlanta. And he's someone that, you know, played in the SEC at Vanderbilt, played for a national championship, got his World Series with the Braves, being a local kid. And, I mean, I was at a Braves game earlier this year. The Braves fans love Dansby Swanson. As much as they like Freddie Freeman, Dansby Swanson may be even more of a favorite son than him. And so if they can't hold on to him, that's going to be sad based on the cap space. Yeah, and I know they've got a good backup shortstop who can take over and uh, Vaughn Grissom, you know, who's really young, really talented. But you'll definitely miss, I think, the leadership and uh, popularity of Swanson. But, you know, speaking of popularity, the last thing I'll say in this day and age, you know, in all sports of players moving from team to team, I was really pleased to see the Yankees be able to re-sign Aaron Judge and keep him in New York, you know, with the great story that he is. Yeah, I mean, Aaron Judge is a guy that's just, 
who commands so much love in the league, the Yankees fans, he's their number one guy. I mean, you see all the guys showing up in the judges' robes and everything to all the games to see him. And he's just a guy that you can't imagine playing for another program. So I'm glad to see him still wearing the pinstripes. And he he only got a nine-year deal. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I guess his agent should get fired, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, with that being said, uh, thank everybody for listening. We'll see you again uh, next week, hopefully talking about a World Cup championship for Lionel Messi in Argentina. And uh, you can listen to all of our episodes on Spotify and, of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter on DJ Sports Show, which if Argentina wins, I'll be posting a lot about it. And as always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe.